Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out today. Um, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new here at IWP or don't know much about us, we are a uh, graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degrees. 18 certificates of study, as well as a, a new doctoral program. Uh, we also offer the, offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's uh, worth of tuition costs. And you can also audit that course for substantially less. If you're interested in learning more about us, about the kind of programs we, we offer here, our academic programs, feel free to see me or anyone else uh, from the IVP staff. It's my, my great honor today to introduce uh, Ryan Vogel uh, here to IWP to speak on the unsafe practice of wartime detention. Uh, Ryan is an assistant professor of law and national security, and he's the founding director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. Before that, he was the, a senior policy advisor in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and served as the principal draftee for several key DOD directives on detention and detaining policy. Prior to that, he taught international uh, and national security law at American University, at Brigham, at Brigham Young University Law School, as well as the Kent, Chicago Kent College of Law. He holds an LLM in public international law with a certificate in national security law from Georgetown University, and both a JD and an MA in international affairs from American. He also happens to be a UVU grad uh, with a, a Bachelor of Science in Integrated Studies. Uh, let me just comment also that uh, we, uh, Utah Valley University is one of the schools that we have a, a MOU with. Uh, it's one that uh, since it began last year, is that right? Last year? Um, we've had uh, two uh, UVU interns uh, and we hope to have many more. They've turned out very, very well. We've been very happy. We've also made several trips out to Utah Valley and have been very impressed with the quality of the curriculum, with the quality of the faculty, with the quality of the students, and we're very excited about this partnership and look forward to building on it in the, in the years to come. So uh, thank you very much for being here, Ryan, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, and uh, thank you to the leadership here at IWP. It's such a, a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I share the same uh, feelings as you do. We're, we're thrilled to have this partnership with IWP. Um, you know, we were talking about this before, and we talked about it in previous uh, occasions, that the missions of Utah Valley University and Institute of World Politics are very similar, very practice-focused, very uh, pragmatic and practical. And, and so we love it, and, and uh, the interns that you've got from us, you'll have plenty more here, and hopefully some uh, students here in your graduate program as well. Uh, today I wanted to talk about um, the United States practice of wartime detention. Um, it's an area that uh, has been very controversial at certain periods of time. Uh, I think it's kind of fallen a little bit off the radar now, but it's still an incredibly important area. So. Um, please, if you have questions, let me know, and, and I will reserve some time at the end for some Q&A as well. So just as an introduction, like I said, this is an area of great, a great deal of criticism, controversy, um, and, and partly for good reason. This is, you know, we're talking about taking people's liberties away um, and, and keeping them in, uh, in a detention facility. And so there's, there's some controversy there. You see the picture of uh, protesters in front of the White House uh, talking about shutting down Guantanamo. Yet, detention is an integral part of warfare. If you're fighting a war, you have to have the capacity to detain. Um, in fact, a, a state, uh, a, a reasonable and a uh, moral state will seek to detain people rather than just using lethal action. The United States has had a long history, and my purpose today is not to go over all of that history, uh, but you know, the United States learned a lot of lessons, especially early on in this conflict, early on in the, these kind of post-9-11 conflicts. Uh, we had detention practices that we've moved away from. We had uh, different actors that no longer detain. Um, and so we've, we've learned a lot um, in the past 20 years. 
and some of those uh, lessons have been hard, hard learned uh, lessons. But I think we've come to a place, and we've been in a place for quite a while where the United States really does have what I would consider the gold standard when it comes to modern detention um, policy and, and practice. Um, my argument, uh, and, and where I'll conclude today, is that the United States should re-embrace the detention mission. We, we've, uh, in, in many ways, we've kind of <coughs> gone away from the detention mission since the end of the Bush administration. Um, and shied away from it, and, and actually uh, had quite a bit of shame about our detention policies and practices, where I don't think that that shame and, um, and, and those feelings are, are warranted anymore. So that's where, that's where we'll go. Couple uh, key points here. One, just at the outset, we'll talk a little bit about this throughout the lecture, but detention is an important part of warfare. It's normal, it's long established. This is not something that we do now that we haven't done before. It's legal. There's entire treaties that dictate how we detain people and when and, and um, in what conditions. And it's humane, um, at least when it's done right. Two, if the state goes to war, it should have the directive and the capacity to detain. In fact, it would be a lot more disturbing if forces were authorized to use lethal force and not given a detention uh, or a capture and detention mission uh, alongside them. And then last, if a state detains enemies during wartime, it should treat those detainees in accordance with all of our legal and policy obligations. I am not one of those people that thinks that, um, that detention should be you know, sort of an outside-the-law type of experience. What we've learned, again, from you know, two decades now, almost two decades, is that if we do detention the right way, um, then it's not only productive uh, for the United States and for our... Um, for our missions and, and operations, but it's uh, it's the right thing to do. We can hold our heads high knowing that we're doing the right thing. So these are some of the questions that, um, that I want to go over today and that, that I hope to talk about. One, a lot of people just have that kind of baseline question. What, what do we mean when we say wartime detention? Is that different from, you know, detaining criminals? Is it different from, uh, you know, detaining um, immigrants that are crossing the border and they're in that kind of uh, pre-trial? condition, what, what are we talking about when we say wartime detention? Two, why do we do it? Why do we detain in wartime? Why is it to our advantage? Why do we not just let people go um, or use lethal action? Why, why is there this kind of in-between? How should we treat detainees? Not only how must we treat them under the law, but how should we treat them under policy as well? What are the challenges of modern detention? Part of the reason for the criticism and controversy is because we deal with a different enemy today than we have in, in years past, um, and we deal with different challenges, um, dealing with geography and, and temporal considerations and, and the parties to the conflict. And then lastly, coming back to that, uh, the, the question I led with, which is how can we re-embrace the wartime detention mission? So we'll start with the first one. What is wartime detention? Well, it is an age-old practice. As long as people have been fighting wars, they've been taking prisoners. Those prisoners that were taken in wars in millennia past were not given the same kind of protections that we would think of today. In fact, a lot of times they became slaves or they became sort of war booty um, and that their conditions were not great. Uh, but over time, we codify the practice of non-punitive detention uh, primarily for humanitarian purposes. This is you know, hundreds, thousands of years in the making. Um, first thing to know here, it occurs only during wartime. So if you detain somebody and you're not in a state of war between one state and another or a state and a non-state party, that is not wartime detention. So a lot of people ask, you know, well, what if we pick up uh, someone from Hamas or something like that? That's not wartime detention. The United States is not at war with Hamas. Um, we're not at war with a lot of groups. And if we detain them, it will usually be in a law enforcement capacity. And, you know, uh, pretrial or, or punitive in nature. That's, that brings me to the other point here, is that um, wartime detention is preventive. It's not punitive. They haven't done anything wrong necessarily, right? They may have done something wrong, but not necessarily. We can detain them simply because they're the enemy. Because the objective is to take that person off of the battlefield. That's why we do it. That's why we detain people. We're taking them off the battlefield so that we don't have to fight them. We're not taking them off the battlefield necessarily because they've done, uh, you know, they committed a crime or something like that. 
Um, it's aimed at combatants, where, where uh, we can detain combatants for the duration of hostilities. Um, but we can also detain civilians as a temporary measure. Probably a lot of you guys have seen um, or read the book, uh, Lone Survivor, right? as most people have seen or, or are familiar with that story. Arguably, those four people that those soldiers encountered were civilians. There's a case that maybe one or two of them could have been combatants. Uh, but arguably, they're civilians. Well, they're quickly taken into custody, um, you know, even as a temporary measure. Can those people be detained? Yes. The law of war permits that. The law of war permits that civilians can be temporarily detained. Again, they haven't done anything wrong, necessarily, but they might, uh, just by their presence or by the things that they know, pose a threat to the combatants or, or pose some kind of imminent security risk that would uh, justify their temporary detention. So even civilians can be temporarily detained um, in, during wartime. And then lastly, the, uh, a key characteristic of wartime detention is that it is indefinite in nature. Um, and a lot of people use that as, as a criticism, right? This person's being indefinitely detained. To which my reply is, well, of course. There are no wars that come with preordained end dates. You know, you don't get into a war and say, all right, we're going to fight until this date, and then we're going to stop. Um, you fight until the war is over. And so detainees can be detained for as long as that, uh, as long as hostilities endure. Um, so that's, that is indefinite. Now, it, it also is temporary. You don't have permanent ability to detain uh, someone that is an enemy, but, um, but it is indefinite because we don't know the date. Wars can last days, weeks, months. Wars can last years. Wars can last decades. Um, and in the case of our detainees right now, we're going on almost two decades. Um, so wars can last a long time, but that's, that, uh, that detention capacity lasts alongside the duration of the war. Why do we detain? A lot of people think it's you know one reason we detain to you know to um, uh, for humanitarian purposes or we detain for these reasons. I, I would uh, posit that there are three primary reasons why we detain: operational purposes, um, humanitarian, and strategic. So the operational purposes, the, the simplest one is that we remove the combatant from the battlefield. That person can no longer attack us. That person is taken off of the battlefield. Although it is worth saying that the, the uh, detention camp remains a battlefield in some ways. That most detainees that are being detained do not stop fighting in some way or another. Um, so it, it just changes the, you know, the nature of the battlefield. But it removes them from a place where they can really do harm um, to our soldiers. Uh, there are intelligence collection opportunities. You get the, the pocket litter. Um, you, you have the ability to interrogate. Uh, you can um, ask them questions about other detainees. Uh, sometimes uh, family members will visit, and you can listen in on those conversations. Um, you know, so that there are there are opportunities to gather intelligence about the enemy while the enemy is in your custody. And then there are also prisoner exchange opportunities. We should not confuse this with hostage taking or anything else. We're not detaining them for purpose of swapping them for other detainees. But we have done that. Uh, the most famous example in recent years were with the Taliban Five uh, that we swapped for Bo Bergdahl, um, and that was that was a prisoner swap. This is again something that's happened throughout um, history, uh, prisoner swaps, and, and we certainly can do it here. So those are some operational purposes. As far as humanitarian purposes, um, I mean, bottom line, it's the humanitarian alternative to killing people. There, are, we don't have to use lethal action in all cases, and in some situations we may want uh, to, we may want and have the ability to take captures rather than, uh, than to kill those people. Um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a part of um, detaining people, capturing and detaining people that leads to more civilian protection, so that's a humanitarian purpose. And at the end of the day, you have the ability to reverse the result. If you kill somebody, they're not coming back to life. If you detain somebody, almost always they eventually will go free. I mean, of the tens of thousands of people that we detained in Afghanistan, Iraq, and at Gitmo, um, all but you know a, a handful of them eventually went home, or eventually went you know to uh, a third country or something, were resettled or something like that. So. 
there is that is that's a, a humanitarian purpose that I think a lot of people don't uh, pay attention to, but is is incredibly important. If you are captured and brought into U.S. detention, you have a really good percentage chance of eventually going home, um, where lethal action does not provide that. And then lastly, strategic purposes. Um, detention incentivizes surrender. Imagine if the enemy uh, was one of those that you see in these movies that well, take no uh, take no surrenders, you know, take no quartering. Um, they're probably not going to want to surrender. They're probably not going to want to. Uh, um, end their part in the war. If you have a humane uh, capture policy and detention policy, then it will it, it will lead to more surrenders, and that will lead to the ending of wars um, in a more humane and quick uh, in a quick way. So, strategic, operational, humanitarian. We shouldn't be ashamed of detention. Um, like I said, morally responsible, law-abiding countries take prisoners. It's the right thing to do, um, and there are upsides on the operational side, too, that help states that are fighting these wars. Now, if we do detain people, how should we treat them? Well, first, we should treat them humanely. Um, detainees, because they're being held in a preventive way, not in a punitive way, we should treat them with, with humanity, with dignity. And that's a very open-ended concept. You know, what, what does it mean to be treated humanely? What does it mean to be treated with dignity? As a, at a bottom level, I think it means you provide them with adequate food and water and shelter. Um, you provide them with you know, enough uh, mental stimulation where they, they're not going crazy. Uh, you provide them with the kinds of things that you know, allow them to continue to be humans that live relatively normal lives. They're still in detention. They're being deprived of their liberty. But they're functioning like human beings to the greatest extent possible. So what does that mean? Well, in the Geneva Conventions, for prisoners of war, we're required not only to give them food and water and things like that, but also to um, provide them with scientific instruments and with reading materials and things like that. Can we do that with all of our detainees? No. Um, th th there are limits to the things that we can do, especially because the enemy that we're detaining often uses the things that we give them to harm the guards themselves or other prisoners. But we can do other things. So for example, at, at Guantanamo, uh, there are art, art classes. Students uh, or the detainees can become students and they can take art classes, uh, do paintings and things like that. We provide books. Uh, for a long time, the most popular book was Harry Potter. There's something attractive about a wizard that lived in the mountains and had a long beard. I, it, I don't know why that resonated, but um, they, they love the Harry Potter series. Uh, movies. Um, you, you provide them with movies and newspapers and things like that. So things that allow the detainee to live a relatively normal life um, and not feel, um, you know, the, the psychological effects of being in indefinite detention. Um, you treat them non-punitively. So again, we're not punishing them by detaining them. Now, if a detainee does things in the camp that merit punishment, they can be punished. So if a detainee attacks the guards, if a detainee attacks another detainee, um, if a detainee doesn't comply with the rules, and these rules are reasonable, you know, to ensure safety and security in the camp, uh, then that detainee can be punished. We're not talking about, you know, physical punishment or anything, but they can be separated from the other population. They can have some of the privileges restricted and things like that. Um, so when we say non-punitive, we're talking about, as a general matter, we're not punishing the detainees. As responsible custodians, how would we want our people to be treated if they were in detention in a foreign country. That's kind of the guidelines, you know, that, that's the guidepost that we try to, to meet, is how would we want our people to be taken care of? Is Al-Qaeda or ISIS ever going to do that? No, they're not. Uh, but that doesn't take away our responsibility and, and our obligation to treat them the way that we would want our people to be treated. And that's, that's you know, the reciprocity piece is what the law of war is, is based on. Well, there are a lot of challenges to modern detention. And again, for, you know, where we started with the, the uh, criticism and controversy surrounding this area, um, there's good reason for it, because it is a very complex and complicated situation that we're in. One, we have unconventional enemies. We're not dealing with Nazis on the other side that all wear uniforms and you know, we can identify. Our enemies hide themselves intentionally amongst the civilian population. Uh, they feign civilian status in order to 
obtain the advantages of the law so that we won't target them, um, but they put the civilian population at risk. So they, they turn the law really on its head um, by, by feigning civilian status. So we have these unconventional enemies. The other thing is um, you have an enemy that is less clear just in, in construct. So um, you have people that support the war effort of Al-Qaeda or ISIS by being a propagandist or by, by being a recruiter or by being a financier um, or you know, clerics um, that, that are integrally involved with the, with the group. How do those people fit in? Are they targetable? Are they detainable? It makes it a lot harder to make decisions on a battlefield where you have enemies that don't look like what the law was designed to, um, to tackle. Um, you have temporal issues. The temporal issues are primarily, when did the war begin and when will it end? Does anybody have any idea when the war with Al-Qaeda will end? I don't think anybody really knows. Um, it could end tomorrow if the political party decided that they wanted it to, uh, to be that way. In fact, during the Obama administration, you had some officials, Jay Johnson in particular, who was the GC, the General Counsel of the Department of Defense, who was talking about a tipping point where we would uh, defeat Al-Qaeda enough where it would go back to being a law enforcement first issue and not a military first issue. Um, that, I don't think, is the position of the Trump administration, but a future administration, or even the Trump administration, if it decided it wanted to end the war with Al-Qaeda, it could say, we won, and we're done, right? That, that is not an unthinkable thing. At the same time, it's also not unthinkable that this conflict could last another 10 or 20 years. Because Al-Qaeda is a resilient group, so is ISIS. Um, they're very good at falling back into the shadows and then coming back, and, and they are an enemy that is very difficult to lastingly defeat. So it's just about how you want to approach it. So the temporal issues are really difficult. On the front end, too, when did the war begin? You know, uh, I, I do this in my classes. You know, Al-Qaeda first declared war against the United States in 1996. But even before 1996, there were, they, they were involved in the first World Trade Center bombing. They were involved in Somalia. So you can go back into the early 90s and find, if you wanted to, a begin date uh, for the war uh, against Al-Qaeda. Um, 98, you have the embassy bombings and another fatwa that declared war against the United States, because I guess we weren't listening well enough in 1996. Um, and then you have the USS Cole bombing in 2000, and then you have the 9-11 attacks. I think everybody would agree that in 9-11 we have a state of war. But in those dates before, you have a lot of reasonable disagreement about when the war started. Why does that matter? Because if we prosecute people, or if we hold them in detention, if their acts were during those years, that, that can make all the difference. I was just going to mention, Three days after 9-11, Congress passes the AUMF, which essentially gives the president carte blanche to use the military to go after Al-Qaeda. Right. I, would, I would peg your official use of the military probably to that day. Probably, yeah. everybody detained before then went to court. Yeah. They either went to Southern District of New York, mostly the Southern District of New York. It was only after that that we began to send people to jail. Absolutely. No, no question um, that we authorize the use of military force, which is a functional declaration of war, um, uh, right after 9-11. The only retort to that is that we did use missile strikes after the uh, embassy attack. So we were using the military instrument in the days, you know, in days before 9-11. And the bombing of the USS Cole was, that it was an attack against our military. So th this is one of those things that is extremely interesting in one context in particular, and that's military commissions. Because you do have uh, detainees that are being held at Gitmo, that are trying to military commission for attacks that predate 9-11 as part of the, the larger work. And so I, I, you're right that uh, it does prompt some interesting questions because of those uh, responses. Geographical issues. Again, one of the, the difficulties with this war is that a lot of the international audience thinks of a NIAC, a non-international armed conflict, as territorially limited. So if we're fighting Al-Qaeda, it's in Afghanistan, or Pakistan, it's kind of a spillover. Um, where the United States has always said that the war with Al-Qaeda is global. We will fight them where we find them. If we find them in Pakistan, that's where we'll find them. If we find them in Indonesia, then we'll fight them there. Um, that is very controversial uh, internationally. I, I, that was part of my job at the Department of Defense, was to work with our allies and partners and, and, and others in the international community 
And that was one of those issues that really was a wedge issue between the United States and the rest of the world. Where, where does this war end territorially? Um, and it was, it was difficult for them. The Obama administration, uh, through Harold Coe, the uh, Department of State legal advisor, issued a, 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 you know, a policy through speech by saying that um, the, the war with Al-Qaeda was global, but that we respected international law. In other words, we're not going to go fight in your country without your permission or consent, but we do embrace the idea that you know this war with Al-Qaeda is wherever we find it. So that, that's another challenge uh, for modern detention. What if they're picked up in a, in a European country, in an ally? Do we have to prosecute them, or can we hold them in wartime detention? And part of that is just our bilateral um, relations with those countries and the agreements that we have. Um, increased need for intelligence. Again, a, a conflict that's with a non-traditional enemy like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, uh, you need greater intelligence to just determine who you have and, and who you're fighting. Uh, and so this is the, uh, an area where, you know, that, that comes to play with uh, detention because you're trying to figure out who you're detaining and whether you need to continue to detain them. There are evidentiary and criminal standards uh, that have never existed before this. So think about you're, you're sending uh, soldiers out for an operation. It's a capture operation. They raid a safe house in some country, and they're supposed to bring those people back. That's hard enough in and of itself. But then if you tell them, oh, by the way, we want you to catalog all the information that you get. We want you to have custody of that information the entire time so that we can use it in court. That's a very, very difficult thing. You're talking about an already dangerous operation and then making it more complex and more dangerous. And by the way, these are 18, 19-year-old soldiers without legal backgrounds, without law enforcement backgrounds. Um, it's, a high, it's a high order uh, to give to um, the people that are actually conducting those operations. And yet, that is what we require a lot of times in today's context, is, is this heightened evidentiary and criminal um, evidence uh, evidence gathering standard. Um, one of the, the more difficult baseline challenges that we have is just what law applies? Does it apply depending on where we are? If we pick someone up in the United States, does one body of law apply? If we pick them up in Europe, does another body of law apply? If we pick them up in Afghanistan, is it a different thing? Or is it a criminal or civil or non-legal uh, regime that we're going to be applying? And then the review processes that we conduct afterward, are those non-legal, are they civil, are they criminal? I can tell you, just from my experience, it's all, it's all of those things. Um, if we pick someone up in um, a theater of war, it's probably going to be a non-legal review process. If we pick them, if we have them detained at Guantanamo, <coughs> they're gonna be subject, uh, potentially, to all three. The periodic review board will be a non-legal review process. The habeas corpus review will be a civil re uh, legal review process. And then if they do go to military commissions or to federal court, then that will be a criminal uh, uh, legal review process. That's incredibly complicated, something that we've never done in warfare before and um, imposes a lot of burdens and uh, responsibilities leading up to the detention and capture and then post-detention and capture for our, our people. Um, transfer security assurance issues. If we do want to, remember the, the mantra under the Obama administration was to close Gitmo. Of course, closing Gitmo meant transferring people out of custody. Um, but where do you take them to? A lot of them can't go back to their home countries. So the, the Uyghur uh, detainee population, for example. They could not go back to China because we have an obligation not to transfer people back to a situation where we know uh, by preponderance of the evidence that they will be mistreated, right? And the Uyghurs we knew were going to be shot on the tarmac, so that, that was not a question. We could not transfer them back to China. Okay, well, what about other countries? Well, any other country that we think might have a, a bad record, Syria or you know, some of these other countries where these detainees come from, um, they're not going to be uh, eligible countries. Some countries, like China, will also put pressure on other countries that are receiving them to not take them. So that's an, an added diplomatic um, challenge that we have to overcome. And then if we do find countries that are willing to take them, we usually have to pay them to do that. Uh, think of like Palau or Bermuda 
um, or El Salvador, some of these countries that took detainees from Guantanamo, they usually came with, um, uh, with price tags attached to them. And then in addition to that, what we were required to do was to ensure that the government would watch them, the receiving government would watch them, and not allow them to travel. And that did not go very well. Usually they would watch them for six months or so, and then they would find their way back to you know, some other Middle Eastern country. Um, a lot of them went to Turkey, or, or some of them found their way back to Syria. Um, but this was the, the, the difficulty was that we were trying to transfer people, and they were, it, that, that was a, a difficult process, and then the end result was not what we wanted anyway. Um, counterinsurgency goals. One of the biggest counterinsurgency goals is to win the hearts and minds of the people. Are you better off doing that by detaining them or by conducting lethal action? It's, it's, it kind of depends uh, in, in a lot of situations. Um, and so there's, a, there's inherent conflict between the counterterrorism and counterinsurgency goals in a lot of situations, and detention is right, um, right in that context, right in the middle of that context. Interoperability issues with allies and partners. We all have different legal codes. If we're working with European allies, they're part of the European uh, Court of Human Rights. Um, in the 2010-2011 context, we got a lot of negative uh, um, court um, uh, decisions from the European Court related to detention, the Al-Skeni and the Al-Jeda decisions, that made it very difficult to work with our NATO allies, our European NATO allies. Um, on, uh, on detention issues. What that ended up doing is us detaining a lot more. Um, the Europeans would capture and they would give them straight to us. And that's difficult. We have different legal codes um, and, uh, and working with our allies to be on the same page is, is incredibly difficult. Um, and then lastly, public confusion over legal frameworks. We already talked about this a little bit, but um, when the Bush administration would talk about wanting to bring people to justice, I think it, it, it revealed something about the United States, and it also confused a lot of people in the United States about what exactly we were doing. Are we, bringing, are we capturing people and bringing them into detention for purposes of prosecuting them? Or are we conducting a normal war where you detain people for the duration of the war? Those are not the same things. And if you're expecting them to see uh, a trial at some point, then you're going to be pretty disappointed when they don't go there. I mean, this is one of the common uh, sources of criticism against Guantanamo. That, you know, you hear that these people have detained, been detained indefinitely without trial, right? This is the, the phrase that we hear all the time with uh, Guantanamo. Well, the indefinite, we've already talked about. Of course they're being detained indefinitely. They're prisoners of war. Uh, they're functionally prisoners of war. Um, but the without trial should also be a, well, of course it's without trial. They're prisoners of war. They don't get trials. Unless you think that it's a criminal, like pre-trial kind of criminal framework. Um, and that is, is one of those enduring difficulties with this kind of a war. We had fought terrorists before 9-11 in a criminal law enforcement framework. And then we had talked about it early on in the war as if it were a justice-oriented kind of um, um, endeavor. And neither of those were true. We were approaching it now in a different setting. We were approaching it as a wartime effort. Um, so it would be more analogous to us capturing Nazis and detaining them until that war was over than capturing terrorists pre-9-11 and bringing them to justice in the Southern District of New York or something like that. And so that's, that's been a lasting challenge here. So those are all difficult questions. Um, not a lot of them have really good answers. But how do we then re-embrace detention? If detention is something that's worth doing, and please challenge me uh, in the Q&A if you think that it might not be worth doing, but if it is something that's worth doing, how do we re-embrace that? Because we do not detain people in a lasting way anymore, and have not for about 10 years. Um, no one has been brought to Gitmo since 2006, I think. Uh, no one um, has been detained in a long-term detention facility since we turned over the Bagram detention facility in 2014. Um, so it's been, it's been a, a while now since we've been in that business. We still capture people, but we turn them over to host governments in order for them to deal with them. Um, so one, continue to build a principled, credible, and sustainable detainee policy. Something that works, something that uh, is humane, something that is legal, um, but, but sustainable, consistent with US values, 
and security interests, because it's always that balance. You get the human rights groups that really want us to do something that's good for the detainees. We want to be humane and we want to live up to our part of law, but we also have to do something that's sustainable and operable. Um, Reemphasize the importance of capture and US-led interrogation and detention. Again, if we're still fighting wars against terrorists and non-state actors, we still need intelligence. Um, and the best source of intelligence um, is often from detainees, especially in those first few weeks and months after they're captured. Um, we provide for detention facilities, both in and out of theater, and then use them. So for a long time we had the Bagram Detention Facility um, in uh, Afghanistan. We had a whole bunch of detention camps in Iraq when we were fighting the war, uh, the war there, and then we had the detention facility at Guantanamo. Wherever we have it, we need a detention facility in the region that we're fighting, and then we need something that's more strategic. It doesn't have to be Gitmo. I am one of those people that is sort of agnostic on Gitmo. It works. It's a detention facility that has worked for us. It's not illegal to have that detention facility. If people think that it's um, tainted beyond repair, then, then fine. But we need something. Right? We, need, we need a long-term detention facility, and we already have one in existence. So, um, it might be better to use that one. Uh, also, the, the value of Guantanamo, just to you know, come back to that, is that um, it's not in the territorial United States, so you do avoid some legal issues that you might encounter if it were inside the United States. One of the things that we looked at when, when I was in government was um, creating a detention facility in Illinois or you know, at a military base you know, in uh, Fort Leavenworth or off of South Carolina. And one of the things that people kept coming back to was, how does this work if they, you know, if, if they seek uh, asylum or if we try them in military commission and are unsuccessful, does their presence in the United States matter? Um, and for a lot of people, that was an unresolved question. So Guantanamo avoids some of those, those issues. Um, continue to employ and modify detainee review processes. I think that's one of the best innovations that we've had in the current conflicts is to create a regular process for reviewing whether we can and should continue to hold detainees. Whether we have the legal authority, it's the right person, and whether we have the necessity, whether that person continues to pose a threat, um, to justify continued detention. I think that's been uh, one of the important developments. And that's all been the United States. There's no other country that does that like we do. And then lastly, engage in international conferences and processes that challenge the legitimacy of detention in non-international conflicts. It's important for the United States to be engaged, even if we don't agree with what they're doing, especially if we don't agree with what they're doing. Um, I worked on a bunch of these processes, Copenhagen, the ICRC's uh, uh, initiative on non-international armed conflict detention, and it, the U.S. is a very, very important voice um, in those processes. We're the ones that are doing this. We have the best practical experience. We're the ones that are in the best position to push back and say, you can't do that, that, that would not work. Um, we've tried these things and, and it would not work in, a, in this kind of a context. Regardless of whether we think that the process is going the right direction, it's imperative for the United States to be involved because it will happen regardless of whether we're involved or not. Better for us to be um, you know, strong voices in those settings than to not have a voice in it at all. So to conclude, and then I'll open it up for question and answer. Detention is the right thing to do. Um, it's morally, operationally, strategically, the right thing for the United States to do. But if we do it, we should do it the right way. Um, and, and we've talked about what that means with humane treatment, with the review processes, with you know, all the other things. Uh, it's, it's an important thing for us to do. And I think we've, we have created the gold standard when it comes to detention. We should not be ashamed of it. We should uh, try to export those same ideas to the rest of the world. So I'll conclude there, and then uh, I'll open to questions. Yes? I get two. First of all, you talked about the various legal systems that come into play. Do you feel, on balance in the long run, that extraterritorial crime, particularly provision of material assistance to terrorism, helped or hurt? And then second of all, if you could comment on the just constant reliance on the Southern District why not take them to the District of Utah, or the, yeah. you pick another district. I mean, Eastern District of Virginia, but that's another go-to place. Other places as well, so if you could just yeah. on that. On your first question, um, do you mean 
does the material support provision in the law help with countering terrorism as a legal generally and with your yes with the detention absolutely I mean I think that there's some criticism that it's too easy to convict people of material support but I think um, I think it's been a very valuable tool in bringing terrorists and those that are wanting to help terrorists to justice so I, I think I think it's been a positive development even the material support provision though is not going to help us in some context so for example a lot of our people at Gitmo um, we have information that they are part of Al-Qaeda, that they've supported, that they've been trained in Al-Qaeda camps, that kind of thing. But either the information that we have is not usable in a federal law context, um, or it wouldn't be enough to satisfy a criminal standard. So in habeas, it's a civil law standard, so it's preponderance of the evidence, meaning that it just has to be more likely than not. And we were able to overcome that hurdle for almost every detainee that went through habeas. Almost every detainee, we were able to satisfy that evidentiary standard. Prove to the court that this guy that we have, it's more likely than not that he's Al-Qaeda. But when you take it to the next level of, is do we, can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that person not is just part of a group, but has done criminal acts and satisfied each element of the crime? That's a completely different uh, thing. So even material support is not um, a standard that's easy enough to satisfy for some of the details that we pick up off the battlefield, especially in the early years of the conflict. On your second question, see if I can Southern remember District. It. Southern District. I don't know. Uh, you know I, think, uh, I think we have a lot of prosecutors that are experienced with it there, and so they, that's kind of a default, you know, that they take in there. Or uh, the, um, you know, D.C. District. We see sometimes the terrorism cases happen there. It is worth noting, though, that um, a lot of these material support cases for non-foreigners, but for Americans that have committed material support crimes, those are tried all over the country. You know, wherever they're wherever they're caught and, and charged. Um, so you do get, you know, Illinois and Minnesota. You know, you, you you have more diversity in terms of where they're tried in that context than when foreign nationals come into the country, and then it's usually by default uh, New York or or D.C. I, don't, I, I have no good reason for that. I don't know. I, I'll ask the Department of Justice for you. <laughs> yes, sir. Along the same line, like uh, somebody like that would be Abu Anas al-Libi, who was picked up in Libya about a little over a year ago. Right. Disappeared off the street and then showed up in the Southern District of New York. Right. He's an old-time Al-Qaeda old Al guy, predates 9-11, been on a wanted poster for 20 years. You know, he's going to go Southern District or, like you mentioned, Virginia here. Right. They, they have tried, I know they have tried to spread it out where you can see it, to spread out these cases, and a lot of it, I think, is because New Yorkers don't want these high-profile terrorism cases in New York City anymore. Yeah, yeah. A lot, there was a lot of pushback post-9-11. There was even the discussion about the 9-11 hijackers. If they were to be tried in the U.S. court, would they actually do it in New York City or would they move it someplace else? I don't think that will ever happen anyway. No. I think the evidence is too poisoned because of the thing you Kind of talked around, which is the enhanced interrogation techniques. I don't think we'll ever see the 9/11 hijackers or their associates in a U.S. court anyplace. Which is unfortunate because I think we had a moment of opportunity there. Yeah, it's um, not like we don't have evidence. It's just we have evidence, but it's yeah, yeah. some of it's going to be very difficult to use in court. Yeah. Um, mostly because uh, <coughs> I believe all of the 9/11-5 were in CIA custody where they were in DOD custody. Mm -hmm. So they were part of that interrogation program that uh, makes it very difficult to use anything. Now, you know, the, they're being prosecuted in the military commissions context right now. You have a little bit more relaxed evidentiary standards there, not by much anymore, especially after um, the updated MCA, but, um, but they've been in that, you know, that trial context for oh, more than 10 years now. And, you know, when will that end? I'm not sure. Um, and then will, will it survive appeal? That's the other question. That's It's going to be a difficult one. Yes? You talked about um, imprisoning uh, people from other countries, but what about uh, American citizens during crisis situations like Koromatsu uh, during uh, World War II, the Japanese determined, you know, the citizens were stripped from, of their rights to move to the center of the, of the country and the Supreme Court upheld the decision, but uh, Ford issued an apology. But what, yeah. what is your uh, belief about uh, imprisoning 
American citizen. So one, I would make a clear distinction between people of a certain ancestry that um, have that, that there's no real evidence to suggest that they're part of a group that's enemy to the United States, which I think is you know the background for Korematsu, um, versus people that we specifically identify, not generally identify, but specifically identify, not because of um, national origin or ethnic background, but because of their actions are part of a group that is currently at war with the United States. I think there's a huge distinction between those two things. Um, if a person is an American citizen um, and is a part of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, their citizenship does not protect them from detention or from lethal action or from anything else. So, I mean, that's what we learned from Al-Waqi, right? Al-Waqi was an American citizen was the chief propagandist and, and one of the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, was on a kill list, courts uh, um, weighed in on um, whether he could be killed without process. They determined that the government's internal process was enough because he had joined a, um, a foreign terrorist group and, and he was killed um, by American forces. So far, uh, we've had very few people, very few Americans detained um, because most of the time the preference, political preference, has just been to bring them to, um, to federal courts. Um, and and to, be, to be candid on that, I think in a lot of ways that's a, that there's a reason for that preference. It's more reliable, it's more lasting. The war with Al-Qaeda could end tomorrow, and with that end to the conflict, your detention authority ends. If you prosecute someone and you successfully convict them, they serve their sentence. And in this context, it's probably going to be 20, 25 years or more. Um, and so there's you know, a more of a guarantee that that person is, no, is going to be uh, taken off the battlefield in a lasting way through conviction in a federal court. But citizenship does not protect you if you join the enemy. We saw that in World War II. We saw that in these wars. Um, it's, um, you know, Americans, you know, we have a diverse country, there's people that have different allegiances, um, and, you know, there were people that were um, compelled to join the terrorist effort against the United States. That's going to happen, but those people will be treated like the enemy um, when, when they take up arms against the United States. Yeah? And just point out, because it gets released this summer, our favorite American Taliban, John Walker Lind, yeah. walks this summer. 20 years are up, and uh, I thought I read someplace that he became an Irish citizen. He may go back to Ireland, so I wish them luck. But um, along the same lines, um, uh, Jose Padilla, the so called dirty bomber, right. was originally an enemy combatant. Then he was put on trial in Miami. So that, there you go, Paul. He was actually put on trial in Miami. He got 20 years material support. He'll be out in four or five years, I believe. Yeah. So we'll have another one who's going to be released. But he was originally an enemy combatant. He was yep. on the brig in Charleston. That's right. And then they put him on trial and locked him up. So. And we're coming up on the 20-year mark for quite a few of those early, early uh, convictions. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the next, you know, in the five to 10-year time frame where a lot of these people start walking. I had not heard about the Irish... Um, I just read that like yesterday or today. If <laughs> <laughs> you want to be an Irish citizen, it's going to go Yes? In, in terms of looking at the U.S. practice of detention, and perhaps it's modernity, but is there an era or a period or even a conflict section that you feel where it was done exceptionally well or where there were practices that should be either emphasized or brought to light again? In again, previous wars? Previously, or maybe it's... It, or if you say, you know, we're doing it right now, maybe that is the answer. I don't think we've ever done as well as we're doing right now. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, part of it is that things change. Um, although, I, I will kind of give it this caveat. During World War II, we detained almost a million people here in the United States. And this is unthinkable today, but we would parole some of those people. So, you know, you'd have Nazi officials that would go work in their communities and then they'd come back at night. You know, it was all based on honor. Again, you know, it's unthinkable today that you would send, you know, Al-Qaeda terrorist out into rural Nebraska to work on the farm, and then he would come back and... and um, it's right up the street here in Germantown, Maryland. Yeah. exactly what he did. Yeah. It, it's amazing. I mean, it, but that worked. So 
Is that a better detention context? I think in some ways that might be preferable. But given the constraints and the realities that we deal with today, um, I don't know, has anybody here been to Guantanamo before? No one has been. So if you, if you went to Guantanamo, and I went there quite a few times, you would, I, I think the reaction that most people get when they go there is, wow, this is really nice. Like this is for detention, right? Because you always have to acknowledge that we're not talking about a nice luxury hotel, right? We're talking about a detention facility. But for detention facilities, especially if you've seen state or federal prisons, or heaven forbid you've been to a foreign uh, prison, um, especially in, in some of the developing countries that a lot of these detainees are from, we've got a pretty nice system. They, they get halal food. Um, they're provided prayer time. Every detainee, when they come into custody, they get a prayer rug and you know all the religious materials that they need to practice their religion. <laughs> Uh, they get you know those things I was telling you about earlier books and newspapers and, and films to watch. Um, they have a rec yard, um, you know. So if you had to be in detention, a U.S. detention facility is not the worst place in the world to be. Um, I think it's 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 uh, a, a pretty good operation now. Um, it, at Bagram, it was the same thing. Now, if you has anybody seen some of you guys might might have served, but have, have you seen a forward operating base? detention facility. Has anybody seen any of those? That's a very different situation, but that's temporary, right? They're only supposed to be there for two to three weeks at the most, and then transfer to a different situation. Those are not very nice. Um, but given the conditions of the forward operating base, they're not supposed to be. You know, they're supposed to be very temporary in nature. Um, so that, that is to be expected. Wartime detention, you do the best that you can. And at a place like Guantanamo, we can do a lot more than we could in, uh, you know, in uh, Kandahar or wherever else. Yes, ma'am. For indefinite detention, especially when you don't have legal teams, because there's no legal process to look out for people, and, and on an ongoing basis, how do you verify humane treatment? Who's responsible for that? How often does it happen? Yeah. And isn't it subject to change with the new administration? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, on the first piece, how do you ensure that humane treatment is, is happening? Uh, there's actually quite a few mechanisms for that. One is that you always have legal advisors on the ground, and they're trained to, you know, to, to be aware of what is legal and what is not, uh, not legal. Um, so you have a, st a staff judge advocate that's always going to be you know, over those operations. Um, the biggest check, I think, the biggest external check is the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. And um, some of you may have had uh, contact with the ICRC uh, before. They are an amazing group. Um, I've worked quite a bit with the ICRC. They're the Red Cross, right? But the International Red Cross. A lot of people, when they think about the Red Cross, they think, you know, blood drives and things like that. That's the American Red Cross. They do disaster relief and things like that. Uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross are involved in armed conflicts. So what they do is they visit detainees, they um, ensure correspondence, so they have letters that they give back and forth to family members. They ensure that family members know that their loved one has been captured, and so there's some knowledge there about the, um, you know, the whereabouts of that person. And they, uh, they check up on the conditions of detention. They interview detainees. When, when at Gitmo, for example, we had congressmen and women that wanted to visit with detainees. We said, no, you can't, you can't visit with them. That's against the Geneva Conventions to, you know, to have them paraded around in front of political figures. But the ICRC had access to every single detainee in our custody because that was, you know, that, that was the legal requirement. Um, and they do a great job. Uh, so that's the biggest external check. What the ICRC then does is they come back to the detaining authority. So they'll come back to Washington, D.C., and they'll meet with senior leadership at the Department of Defense and the White House, and they'll say, this is what we found. You know, the detainees are saying this. They may be lying, but you may want to look into this. Um, we observed this, so we observed these conditions, and we would recommend that you do A, B, and C, you know, to make the operations better. And in most cases, the United States says, thank you, and we'll go and, and do those things. Some of them we can't, right? So uh, the ICRC, for example, um, for a long time has been interested in family visits. That's not really, that's not as practicable at Gitmo as it is 
in theater, you know, uh, where we did do a lot of family visits face to face, not just um, through letters and things. Um, so that's one way. And then you have lots of people on base all the time uh, on, on, in detention facilities. You have human rights groups that go down and visit. You have, um, you know, civil uh, advocacy groups. You have lawyers for the detainees. You have, you have a constant stream of people that are on the base, and so. Um, Humane treatment is, is not very difficult to assess and to improve if there are shortcomings. But is that subject to change? Yes, it is. Um, so I, I think I mentioned this before, but throughout the 20 years, we made modifications and changes, and I think all in the right direction. Could an administration go backwards on that? Yeah, they could. Um, but if they did, they'd get a lot of blowback. And so administrations know that. You know, administrations know that if you'd be picking a fight on an issue that you don't really need to, you know, um, but they could do that. They, they could, um, they could uh, change some of the things that we've been doing at detention facilities and, you know, ratcheting back some of the privileges or things that we've done. It's possible. Yeah. Yes, sir. How do you think that the United States can better communicate, you know, all the changes that have been, all the reforms that have been made? I mean, you talked about earlier about, you know, all that evidence being poisoned, and, you know, public perception, I would say, probably more broadly, is really not necessarily in our favor on right. this, especially as it's become more and more politicized. So the question would be, you know, how can, you know, the United States, including the military, better, you know, communicate to the public that all these changes have been made and these people are, in right. fact, being treated relatively well, especially historically. Uh, it's a great question. I mean, here, I, I approach that in kind of two different ways. One is that we do try to, but you can imagine how much people trust the government, right? They, you know, people just inherently think the government is lying on these kinds of things. So one thing that we do is we take a lot of people down, you know, so uh, human rights groups um, and others, uh, they they're allowed to visit Guantanamo and tour and ask questions and do all these kinds of things. Um, and then we hope that that trickles out and, and they you know, report favorable things back. It doesn't always happen. Um, often doesn't happen. But that's, what, that's the hope, is that if we are transparent as possible, that you know, the, the word will get out. The second thing, though, is, is actually the, the crux of my presentation, which is we, by not detaining people, it looks like we're ashamed of what we're doing, right? It looks like what we're saying is, we don't want to do detention because that's bad stuff. You know, we don't want to do that. We can use drones and we can use lethal force. All that is fine. But detention, we just, you know, we don't do that kind of stuff. Even in this administration, you know, we don't do detention. I think if we really re-embraced it, I really hoped the Obama administration would do it just because I think the side that would, was more skeptical of detention operations would have been more persuaded by him embracing it than by President Trump or uh, Republican president. Um, so I, you know, I, but I do think though that if we just start doing it again in a way that shows that we're responsible states that do humane things uh, during wartime, that that will make a significant statement. Yes, sir. So I want to get your opinion on our non-state allies, the SDF and the of ISIS fighters and their family. Now, they're basically doing this on behalf of the global coalition. It appears from what I've seen in the press that the U.S. and the, our global, our, at least our European allies are funding this. They're very makeshift facilities. Some of them are old prisons. Some of them are schools. Yeah. Where do you see all that going over the, the, the near <coughs> and midterm? I, I don't know. I, I suspect that we will continue to do it because it's easier. We don't have to spend you know, the time, resources, I don't think it's the right thing to do. I think that um, detainees, that we would get more out of detaining them ourselves, and that it would be better for all parties concerned if they were in our custody. Uh, I mean, I certainly learned that in Afghanistan. If, it, if a detainee went into Afghan custody, you never knew what was going to happen to that person. Um, that was one of the ironies, is that a lot of human rights groups and others, they, you know, the, the host should be detaining them. I don't think you really want that. I mean, I, I think if you knew what was going to happen, you would rather us do this than, you know, the host government. And I think that's certainly true. Even it's with not the government. They're a non-state right. actor. Right. Who, if they were to, if a 
certain country to the north of them were to attack them tomorrow, I'm sure they would let all those detainees go right. because they need to go fight that state actor to the north. Exactly, exactly. For operational, strategic, humanitarian purposes, better for us to do it than for us to outsource that to state or non-state actors that are just less capable of doing it the right way than we are. I think that's all the time we have, right? Um, I'm happy to stick around. Yeah. yeah. What movies are they showing at Quintana? What movies? <laughs> I, I know they did Harry Potter. Look, Harry Potter is very popular. Um, it's very popular, but they... Um... Shangshaw Redemption. <laughs> yeah, I hope, <laughs> I hope that movie's not so bad. Hey, thank you, everybody. I appreciate your time. I'll take it.